Today on the Multiply Podcast, we're discussing the myths of discipleship. Check it out. Hey everybody, welcome to or welcome back to the Multiply Podcast. We're so excited you're with us. Today, David and I have a special treat for you. Recently, we spoke and did a conversation about the myths of discipleship at David's church where he's the lead pastor. And so we wanted to share it with you. It was a fun conversation, um, and we hope that it benefits you. So without further ado, here's our conversation about the myths of discipleship. Now this morning, what we're going to do is a little different. Instead of me preaching a sermon, we're going to have a conversation about discipleship. And we're going to talk about, really, um, what are some misconceptions, misunderstandings, myths about discipleship. I'm going to invite Jared to come on up and join me. Jared Berry, uh, come on up. Yeah, let's, let's welcome Jared. So Jared is a, a good personal friend of mine. I've known Jared for about eight years now, and Jared has served as a pastor in Long Island in different capacities. He was a youth pastor, then a young adult pastor, um, most recently a discipleship pastor, and now he serves as the youth and Chi Alpha director for the Assemblies of God in the state of New York, which is the role I served in until the beginning of this year. Jared's a good friend. He's also a neighbor now. He's just moved yep. in the area. Yep. And Jared and I actually co-host a podcast called The Multiply Podcast, and on that podcast, we talk about leadership and discipleship. And so I thought, let's have a conversation about discipleship for the church and see how it goes. And if it's a disaster, it's Jared's fault because, right. I mean, I'm up here every week. So Absolutely. if this goes poorly, it's on you. And it's if it goes me. well, it's I will take that. My I will idea. own it. Yeah. I will own it. So, all right. Uh, Jared, for those who don't know you, um, first off, welcome to Syracuse. Welcome to Clay. Welcome to Trinity. Um, Jared and his wife, Jennifer, uh, and their children, Judah and Charlotte, are part of our church. Um, so we're glad to have you here. Uh, how's the transition, and, and what's something that you've, you're enjoying about being in upstate New York? Yeah, thanks for the welcome. Uh, so many of you guys have made us feel at home and part of the family here, and so we appreciate that. And um, it's, it's been fun. We've enjoyed it. It's a whole different world. You know, we lived right outside of Queens, New York, so it's a different world, but we're enjoying the slower pace. Uh, it does weird me out how nobody honks at anybody here. <laughs> you know, that is a strange thing for me. But uh, last night we got to go to our first Syracuse football game, so nice. we feel like, you know, we're officially in. Yeah. You know, yeah. we're officially part of the family. Nice. Have you done? Have you done like apple picking or? Not yet. Well, not yet. Maybe not, today. Who not knows? in the. Not in the family yet. Then. Yeah. That's that's part of the deal. Part of Is the deal. Is that a Syracuse thing? I think everybody goes apple picking, Dave. Yeah. That's not a you know. No, it's unique to here. Okay. <laughs> so, um, uh, Jared's also had opportunity to experience all the good food in our area, thanks yes. to my guidance and mentoring. So, uh, they they've they they're enjoying their time here, and so we're glad to have you here. So this morning, what we want to talk about is four misconceptions about discipleship, four things that people believe to be true, and then even really probably you and I believe to be true at times in our lives that uh, we think Scripture guides us away from. And uh, before we jump into that, though, we thought we would just uh, give you some evidence of our personal disciple-making, some things in our lives, ways that we've invested into people and poured our lives into people. And uh, one of the most important disciple-making environments, of course, is in your home. And uh, I'm trying to disciple my daughters. I have three girls, 10, 7, and 4. And one of the most important things about them uh, or about my relationship with them is that I disciple them. 
and that I sort of help them to live life like I do. And I was reminded earlier this week that they are being well-discipled. And this was Madeline earlier this week walking around. She's got a little gate trainer that she walks around. And, and uh, if you can zoom in on that picture, that is a perfectly cooked rib. And she just walked around the house just gnawing on that rib till all the meat, till all the meat was gone. And so she's my little disciple. She's a little carnivore. I remember when we told our oldest girl, Lilia, about vegetarians, uh, she was in shock. She, was, she said, They're, why? why? And, and uh, I said, well, you know, some people, it's a choice that they make. And she, she immediately said, she thought for a second, she said, I'm a meatitarian. <laughs> we can also see Aaron's discipleship there because she has a nice napkin. She's keeping it clean. <laughs> that is not from you. That's that actually 100% true. <laughs> So, and then uh, last week we were in Valley Forge, and I was in awe of Jared's disciple-making. He's making disciples of people before he even meets them. Complete strangers. This is, it's unbelievable what happened. Um, We went to Valley Forge, and of course, if you don't know this, David is very loved around the state, and even outside the state. So Valley Forge, he was speaking first. He got a, a rousing standing ovation. So I, you know, a lot of pressure on me to try to, you know, uh, really upstage him and get people to forget about him as quick as possible. So I want to make a good impression. We show up to the very first class that we're teaching together, and um, I'm, I'm, we're there, and in walks a young woman, and, and this, this happens. Can we show this picture? We're wearing the exact same outfit. <laughs> I mean, literally, other than the shoe color, that is the same outfit. Thankfully, different size clothes. But, uh, yeah, so, so I felt that was embarrassing. Dave thought that was a product of discipleship. Um, it's a positive way of looking at things. But Yeah, I just was looking for any way to show that picture to everybody. Thank you. So. Yeah. All right, so uh, four discipleship misconceptions, and we'll get rolling right here. So the first one is this. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. Number one misconception about discipleship is this, that the goal is to behave, that the goal is to behave. Now, it's important for us to know the difference between what I would call the goal and the benefits of reaching the goal. So here's an example for you. Jared and I actually go to the YMCA together every now and then, and uh, we go to try to encourage each other and and exercise together. It's not gone well so far, but we're committed. And um, so when you go to the, when you start exercising more and eating healthier, what is the goal? And I think that the goal ultimately is, is to be healthier, right? When you eat less and exercise more, the goal is to get healthier. But what are some of the benefits of reaching your goal? Some of the benefits are you might lose weight. Your clothes might start to fit you better. Uh, you might just feel better about yourself, right? So those are the benefits of the goal. But the goal is get healthy. Now, the problem of getting those confused is that if your goal is simply losing weight, there actually are very unhealthy ways to lose weight, aren't there? You don't have to do things correctly to lose weight. There's unhealthy ways. I haven't figured any of them out yet, but apparently there are unhealthy ways to lose weight. And so understanding what the real goal is, and the real goal of discipleship is not to behave. Now, um, discipleship does change our lives, and it changes the way we live. But Jared, what are some of the dangers, in your opinion, or in your experience, of making behavior modification the goal of discipleship? Yeah, and I should, we should note that the reason we have not lost weight is because we're very concerned about not doing it the right way. So yes. we're just going to avoid it totally. Right? Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it's a great point. And I think the main reason is there's so much 
uh, I think you used this reference before about the iceberg, right? And the iceberg, like what you see above the surface is a tiny compared to how big it is below the surface. And that's actually true of our hearts. So much of our behavior isn't about the behavior, it's about the motives, why we do what we do. Mm-hmm. And so if, if you're not seeking that, if you're not trying to f- figure that out and disciple that and shape that, you could change the surface and uh, it may look different or evidence itself as differently, but the heart is not shaped differently, the heart's not changed differently. So basically your behavior changes, but your motives never do. And, um, and that's a really dangerous thing. And in fact, when you look at Jesus, um, who he confronts the most is really well-behaved people who have the wrong motives, yeah. right? So if anything, the concern for our hearts should be more about us who tend to probably behave better but uh, haven't checked our motives. Yeah, and I think that there's, there are lots of ways to change our behavior that actually have nothing to do with loving Jesus more. That's, that's the real danger, right? Yeah. So um, what are our primary motivations? And Jonathan Edwards uh, writes a lot about this, but he says the primary motivations for why we sin are one of two things, fear or pride. Either the desire to protect ourselves, which is fear, or the desire to prove ourselves, which is pride. And so Edwards says that's really the root of most sin in our hearts. We're either trying to protect ourselves or we're trying to prove ourselves. But then he drills in a little deeper and says, There actually are religious people who have those exact same motivations at the root of their good behavior. There are spiritual religious churchgoers who go to church, why? To try to prove themselves, to try to prove how good they are, or to protect themselves because they're afraid if they don't go, God won't love them, and maybe they'll spend eternity apart from him. So what he's saying is there has to be a shift in our hearts from those two things, the need to prove myself, the need to protect myself. And if the only thing we're really aiming for is different behavior, then we can get to it without actually having heart change. And um, in, in uh, 2 Corinthians 3, I want to read this verse, 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul says this. He says that we all, speaking of people who know God, with unveiled faces, those who see God for who he is, and he uses this word, beholding. That's the key word I want you to think of with this first misconception, beholding. Beholding the glory of the Lord. And that word beholding means to see, but not just to see like I see you right now, but to like consider and to process and to let it kind of affect you. So beholding the glory of the Lord, we're being transformed, which means we're being changed from one, from into the same image the, image, the image of Jesus, from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Now, what is Paul saying here? Paul is saying is that the way that Christians change is by changing who they worship, not just how they live. And sometimes when we think of discipleship, we think, okay, I'm going to be a disciple of Jesus. I'm going to read my Bible 30 minutes a day. I'm going to pray 30 minutes a day. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to give. I'm going to stop saying those words. I'm going to stop watching those movies. I'm going to stop doing those things. Now, that's all going to be eventually, hopefully, fruit of heart change. But it's not the goal of discipleship. It's the benefits that come with getting to the goal. The goal of discipleship is not to behave. The goal of discipleship is to behold, to see Jesus in his beauty, in his truth, for who he is. And once we behold Jesus and see that he's beautiful and wonderful and worth so much more than all the worthless things that we tend to behold and look to and set our hopes in and and direct our hearts toward, it allows us to walk away from lesser things, not because we have to, but because we want to, because we found something better. 
uh, I forget who it is, I think Thomas Chalmers, I think that's who it is, old Scottish minister. He says, if, you, if, if a child is holding a rusty knife and you try to just take it away, like, you know this if you have kids, try to take something away from a kid that they want to hold on to. Like, good luck, right? Uh, however, what he says is, if you offer that child something better, like a brand new shiny sharper knife. I'm just kidding. Don't do that. But, but why, why are we giving kids knives in this scenario? <laughs> it's his illustration, not mine. So uh, a shiny toy, what does the child do? The child will soon forget that rusty knife because the child has now beheld, seen something better. And this is the goal of discipleship, moving from unbelief to belief in the gospel. And the only way we're going to move from a lack of belief in Jesus to growing belief in Jesus is you got to see Jesus. You have to see him. You have to experience him. The spirit has to work in your heart. And so the goal is not about behaving rightly. The goal is about beholding rightly. And once we behold Jesus and see who he is, it will change how we live. Okay? One, one quick, one quick um, example that helps me in this is when we think about marriage, um, you know, we're called to serve our spouses. So I can serve my wife and do all, let's say she comes up with a whole list, and we won't ask her if I actually do this because that will be embarrassing, but we'll create a whole list, right? And I could do everything on the list, but if my reason for doing it is because I'm afraid she's going to leave me or hit me or, you know, do something else, that really matters versus the reason for doing it is I, I genuinely just love her, right? And the same type of truth applies to our relationship with God and our growing as a disciple. Yeah. And we can sort of manufacture our own behavior, but we can't manufacture heart change. So it requires us to depend on the spirit and the grace of God. Okay, so that's the first misconception. Uh, Jared, why don't you tell us what the second misconception of discipleship is? Second misconception is the key to growing is knowing. Or I'm sorry, no, that's the last one. The, the second misconception is the environment is inside the church. So the best discipleship environment or the only discipleship environment is inside the church building. And um, I don't know about you guys, how many of you were raised in church, you grew up in church? Okay, quite a few of you. This is, this is kind of the thought process that I grew up with, especially since some of you know this, there was a time when we were at church like every day of the week, right? Like I remember as a kid, it was Sunday, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday, right? It was just all the time. And part of that, part of this misconception, I think, came out of that culture, which is, if we really want God to do something in discipleship and growing people, we have to get them into this building so that they can hear from the pastor or hear from the leader or hear from the worship team because that's how God's going to grow. And it's kind of like if you build it, they will come mentality, right? But there's some problems with that. And one of them is when we look at scriptures like Matthew four nineteen through 20, where Jesus, it says, Jesus called out to them, come follow me and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. When we look at these texts and we look at the biblical example, it doesn't match that at all, right? The theological fancy word is ecclesiology. It's how we do church. What does church look like? And today it looks very different. Jesus didn't have a nice fancy building like this on a Sunday morning where they would gather together and play four songs. And there's nothing wrong with that. We do this because it it works and it's part of our mission, but it's not the only way to do it. One of the key things to how Jesus made disciples is he invited people to do life with him. 
And the reason why that matters, and the reason why a Sunday morning or a church building is not the only way, or, or is not the only way to do discipleship, is because discipleship, as David just said, is really about helping shape what people love. And if we depend on the time that we're here, it's such a small percentage of our lives and touching different the areas of what we love. It's such a small percentage that there's no way to really help shape someone's heart. So how do they see what it looks like at work and in their marriage and in their family life? How do they do all of those things that it has to happen outside of only this environment? This environment matters, but it's really the start or the catalyst to, to help us live life together so we can see all environments how our loves need to change. Yeah, I think one of the dangers of this mentality that the environment for discipleship is only inside the church is that parents, here's what you'll do if you believe this, you will outsource the discipleship of your children to the church. Because if discipleship only happens on Sunday mornings or Wednesday nights or when we gather, then that means that, that you, know, you, you just expect the professionals, the teachers, those who are trained to help your children or even help you grow in your faith. And the environment is not simply inside the church. The environment for discipleship is, is really all of life. As you go, in your going, not just when you come to church, make disciples. As you go, in your living. And so sometimes what we do is we create this, like, we separate our lives into buckets, right? You ever have that moment where you see someone from a different part of your life in a new place and you, it just disorients you for a second? I remember the first time I saw my, when I was a kid, when I was about nine years old, I saw my third grade teacher in Wegmans, and I was like, what? She doesn't live at the like, school? She, yeah. She eats food? Like, I, I just, and she was wearing jeans, and I was like, what? Like, like, my whole world didn't make sense for like four hours. And sometimes it's because we, we kind of, we like to compartmentalize our lives. This is for this. This is for this. And we're at danger at times of doing this with discipleship. I learn about Jesus in the church, and if I got friends that need to know about Jesus, I got to get them into the church. Now, there's nothing wrong with getting your friends into the church, but how about getting the church to them? Because the church is not a place, it's a people. The church is not a it's not, we don't go to church, we are the church. And so wherever we go, we should be making disciples, and we shouldn't be over-dependent upon programs and classes and preaching and teaching, as important as those things are, if the church in America came under persecution, and like many parts in the world, and could no longer publicly gather without fear for their lives, we should be proficient at making disciples without having this gathering. And if we aren't, then we've somehow missed what Jesus has actually called us to do. As you go, make <laughs> disciples. And so really the challenge and the question here is, is, is what are the environments outside of these walls? Thank God for the environments inside of these walls. And we are doing everything we can inside these walls to disciple and to help people love Jesus. But it's simply not enough. It just isn't. Think about it. We're only here, uh, some of you are only Sunday mornings, so you're only here 90 minutes a week. I'm not going to do the math, but I mean, think about how much time that is compared to the rest of your... Is this seriously the only environment that you can be discipled in and you're going to survive? And your faith is going to flourish and grow? I've used this example before. I think I used it last week. It's like trying to eat one meal a week. You're going to be very sick. We would lose weight. But you're going to you're gonna be... Unhealthily, though. Unhealthy. Unhealthily. You, yeah. you're, you would get very, very sick, right? And it's the same truth spiritually. You will be very sick spiritually if you expect all the discipleship in your life to happen inside these walls. One of the things that was a game changer for me as a young adult pastor is when my wife and I started to intentionally open up our homes and invite young adults to live life with us, 
Um, before that, they were in services every week. They were having conversations with us. They heard me preach a million times. Apparently did no good at all. But, um, but all of a sudden, we started to invite, invite them into our lives. Here's what I realized they started to see. How we parented our children. Mm-hmm. How we dealt with conflict. Like, how do you deal with your kid? They watch how you deal with your kids screaming and throwing a fit and not going to bed. They see what happens when you and your spouse get into an argument and how you handle that and resolve that. And we're so quick to shield people from that. But I want to tell you, like, it's those times in life, it's those environments that actually matter the most when it comes to discipleship. How you talk about money and the things that you love. And so and we invite our neighbors and our coworkers, and they see us loving things differently. Mm. That is a game changer in a way that um, you actually can't reproduce that in a Sunday morning service. So if our definition of discipleship is moving from unbelief to belief in the gospel in every area of life, it requires us to view every area of life like a disciple-making environment. Like Jared was saying, there's so many things that you do regularly that you'll never do in this building, and other people need to see what it looks like for somebody who loves Jesus to do that, to navigate that. Okay, let's get to the third misconception. And the third misconception is this when it comes to discipleship, that the audience is Christians only. That the audience is Christians only. And for a long time, there's been this sort of uh, dichotomy in the church between evangelism and discipleship. And some people would say, well, that church is great at evangelism, but not great at discipleship. Or that church is not that great at evangelism, but they're great at discipleship. And here's what they basically meant. Evangelism was reaching people who were outside of a relationship with God and pulling them into, by God's grace, a relationship with God. And discipleship was helping them once they made a decision for Jesus, then we start discipling them. And my growing conviction is this. It's not very biblical. And what's more biblical is to view all of life as discipleship and the evangelism part informing it. So the word evangelism has at its uh, heart the word evangel. And evangel means, uh, it's, the, it's, it's what we get the Greek word evangelion, which means the gospel, the good news. And so I like to talk about it this way, evangelistic discipleship, gospel-centered discipleship, discipleship that is rooted in and stays faithful to the gospel. Now let me, let's talk a little bit about why I think this, because this might be the most sort of jarring of the three, especially if you've been in church a long time. You might think, well, wait, we need evangelists, yes. We need pastors and teachers, and uh, yes, but don't they have different roles? And that in itself is one of the dangers. When you think of evangelism versus discipleship, every Christian would say, I know I should be making disciples. But a lot of Christians would go, I'm not an evangelist. It's just not me. So I don't know that I can go out and reach people. And that dichotomy of evangelism and discipleship has led to this mentality of there are professional evangelists who reach people who are far from God. Certainly there are people, when you think of people like Billy Graham, who had a call and anointing on his life to preach the gospel in a way that many people responded. That is true. But every single one of us is called to make disciples of all nations, of all people, regardless of where they actually are in their relationship with God. Now, in Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 32, Jesus calls Levi, we know him better as Matthew, and he's, he's a tax collector. And he says, Matthew, I want you to follow me. And it says that Matthew left everything and followed him. So this is the call again. Matthew, come and make disciples. Now, I just want to read to you. Here is the very next scene 
This is the disciple-making environment that Jesus pulls Matthew into. Let me read this to you. This is, again, Luke 5, verses 29 to 32. It says, And Levi, or Matthew, made him a great feast in his house. It was a dinner party. And there were a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious people, grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Okay. So Jesus calls Matthew. I want you to make disciples. And the very next disciple-making environment we find them in is a dinner party filled with people who are far from God. Now, hold on. That's not disciple-making. That's evangelism, isn't it? No. All of life is discipleship. All of life is helping people move from unbelief to belief in the gospel in every area of their lives. Think about what Jesus did. He called these men, Peter, James, John, Andrew. He said, come and follow me. And what did he do for the next three and a half years? What would we all agree that he did? Did he evangelize them? He discipled them, right? But were they converted? When were they converted? When did Peter really know? When did Peter really believe? And even if you're generous with Peter, the earliest would be his great confession of faith when Peter says, you are the Christ, the Messiah. That's the earliest that might be where he finally saw Jesus for who he was and put his trust in him. But some people would say, no, it was later. In fact, many people would say it was after Jesus uh, died and resurrected and he breathed the Holy Spirit into them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And for them, that was their moment of conversion. Okay, so what this means, if that's true, is that Jesus was discipling unconverted men for three and a half years. And so should we. We should disciple and remember what the definition of making disciples is? Live a life worth sharing and share it intentionally and generously. Now, we can do that whether they know God or don't know God. It doesn't change. It's disciple people. Sometimes you're discipling people to Jesus and sometimes you're discipling people in Jesus. That's the only real difference. So pre-conversion discipleship versus post-conversion discipleship. Any thoughts on some of the dangers of thinking about this? Well, I think, I think it changes the way we think. Like uh, we're kind of become obsessed with a, what's the one-time moment of conversion, mm-hmm. you know? And um, we're kind of trained that way. If you grow up in church, like, hey, you know, raise your hand or say this prayer. And, and those are tools. That's not, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. But it changes the narrative in our mind between when was that moment versus the journey and looking at people. And we become less obsessed with having that moment with people, right? Like, I don't want to miss this moment. I got to. And sometimes we force things Mm -hmm. that we don't have the relational equity that we need to have. So we force it because we're afraid to miss the moment. But instead of looking at them as this is a journey together. And I've had some some really beautiful discipleship relationships where honestly, I couldn't tell you when they actually started following Jesus. It was just like you'd see them, they'd kind of start to try it on a little bit yeah, yeah. and then revert back and then try. And all of a sudden it was like, oh, they're on the leadership team. You know, like, yeah. And it, it was just those cool moments where it was this journey instead of, a, instead of an instantaneous moment. That's good. And you know, Jesus didn't say go and make converts. He said go and make disciples. Conversion is God's work. It's not our work. 
And some of you could stand up and say, I know the moment for sure I trusted. How many of you are like that? You know, like you can talk about the minute that you put your trust in Jesus. Like, you know exactly it was dramatic. It was big. But how many of you, and this is me, it's just like you, you, you were following Jesus. You, were, you think you were following Jesus. You were learning. You were growing. But you're not 100% sure like the exact moment that all of a sudden the Spirit breathed life into your heart and you start following. Anybody else like that? You just sort of follow Jesus for a while and then all of a sudden you're like, well, I really love Jesus. When did that happen? Like, I really trust Jesus. And so even in the New Testament, you have Paul, the apostle Paul, who was Saul. What did he have? He had a dramatic experience. He had a moment that he could point to. So some of you have that. But then you have Peter. And if you were to ask Peter, Peter, when when was your heart truly converted to trust fully and solely in Jesus? I'm guessing he would go, I don't know. I thought it was then, but then Jesus called me Satan. And I thought it was... (laughs) I thought it was never a good sign. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not not a discipleship goal. Yeah. I thought it was then, and then I denied him three times. And then I thought it was then, but even in Galatians 2, Paul had to confront Peter because he'd forgotten the gospel. So I'm not saying that Peter, I'm not saying you're not converted until you're perfect, of course. But I'm saying we're not really in charge of that moment. That's the Spirit's work. What we really are in charge of is positioning ourselves to grow from unbelief to belief in the gospel. So one of the other dangers, and we'll get to the last one, is this. When we think of evangelism versus discipleship, and you, you touched on this, evangelism becomes transactional in nature and not, not sort of transformational. You, you say a prayer, and I'll give, you, uh, a, a, I'll give you an assurance of your salvation. You do know that there's lots of false conversions that have happened. Lots of people who have prayed prayers at events, thought they were saved, but there was no real change. They just were emotionally moved, or they were in the moment. And sometimes when we think of evangelism versus discipleship, that happens. Um, all right, we have more thoughts. Each of these could be their own message, but so that we finish on time, let's jump to the, uh, the last one. Yeah, so the last misconception is the key to growing is knowing. The key to growing is, is knowing. And um, this is kind of the idea that... Um, that once I have it, like that's the key to discipleship is it's, it's me focused, it's about me, and, and that's the goal of life is for me to become more Christ-like as an individual, but that doesn't really affect anybody else. There is no going part, it's just about me kind of building my knowledge. And the potential is that people can sit in church for years and years and years, and their biblical knowledge goes up and up and up, mm-hmm. but the simple truth about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus stays in its infancy. And so, and I think this is what, when you talk about being puffed up with knowledge, that idea where instead of growing is going, it becomes growing is knowing. And I think the truth of disciple, discipleship is that, in fact, growing is going. The heart of discipleship, the, the fruit of discipleship in our life. How do you know that you're a disciple? It comes down to reproduction. Are you doing what's been done in you? Yeah. Is what God's done in you now being done through you for other people? And the reason why this is so important is um, this, this is the whole heart of God. Like the whole meta-narrative, the big story of all of the Bible is this. God is coming to rescue and redeem his people, right? He's giving them a new identity, which is individual. But then with that identity comes a mission, which is to join in his mission of rescuing and redeeming all people. So to become a disciple of Jesus is to join in the mission of God. And there's a a story, one of my favorite stories in the Bible is the Old Testament. We're going to old school since we've been going new school. 
this whole time. It's the story in the book of 2 Kings chapter 5, the story of Naaman. So if you've never heard this story, it's one of my favorites. Naaman is this uh, commander in the army. He's a very wealthy, has-it-all uh, guy, and he comes out with leprosy. And I'm gonna, I'll really briefly tell the story. Right? So he, he, his life is basically over. He has no shot. But he's got a slave girl that he got from in raid that he did in Israel. And the slave girl says, hey, I know someone. His name's Elisha. He's a prophet. He can heal you. So Naaman goes off with all these letters from his king and all this stuff. Long story short, he ends up having this encounter with God where he dips himself in the river because Elisha tells him to. He, he becomes healed and for the first time in his life realizes who God really is, Yahweh. Comes from a, a polytheistic country and now all of a sudden he realizes there's one God, his name's Yahweh, right? Transformed by God. And he goes back and uh, he asks Elijah to gather truckload, or cartloads of dirt. And he, the reason being is he's going to take them back to his homeland. And he says, when everybody else is worshiping the gods of my land, I'm going to sprinkle the dirt on the ground and I will kneel. And, and what it means, what he was saying was, I'm going, to make a, I'm going to make a declaration to everybody that while you're worshiping false gods, I've seen who the real God is. And so what, he, what he's saying is what, what, he, what had been done in him, he, notice what he didn't do. He didn't go, hey, Elisha, can I stay here with you guys? Hmm. Right? I just want to hang out with you guys. And he also didn't go, oh, this has been great for me. Now let me go back and just get in the fold and do my thing. No, he went back. He didn't stay, but he went back. And he went back to show everybody what he had found, which is worth loving and serving and worshiping, potentially at the risk of his own life. Now, we don't know how that story ended, but we do know that was his heart. And so... The truth of discipleship is what God has done in you, he wants to do through you. And that's the greatest evidence that we're really owning and understanding what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Yeah. The, there is this mentality sometimes that like discipleship is just about accumulating knowledge. Like I just need to know more. And, and knowledge is important, especially knowledge of scripture, reading your Bible, understanding those things. But at some point, knowing is not the key to growing, but actually, or yeah, the key to growing is not knowing, but the key to growing is going you got to actually do something with all that knowledge. you got to put it into practice. And this is where we talk about like real responsibility and taking actual responsibility for the mission of God. This is where James says uh, in his letter to the New Test- in the New Testament, he talks about faith and works. He basically says, that's great that you have faith, but real faith leads to works. Works doesn't lead to faith. You got that, right? You don't work your way into salvation. But once you've experienced the goodness of God, there are works that God has created you, according to Ephesians 2.10, that you are God's workmanship, and he's created you for these good works. He's prepared them for you from the beginning of time. And so now, if you're really going to be a disciple, you don't just sit around to learn and know. you got to get up and go. Yeah. you got to do something with it. you got to put it into action. And it's the same thing with, you know, imagine trying to become a great basketball player and you just watch videos on YouTube over and over and over on how to shoot free throws. But you never go to the gym and actually shoot free throws. It's the same thing, trying to be a disciple by just sitting in church or listening to podcasts or listening to sermons and reading your Bibles, but you never put it into action, you're not going to grow. And so... Uh, Let me summarize. So just to go back through the four, misconceptions of discipleship, and then Jared's going to pray, and we're going to close with a song. Uh, The goal is to behave. That's not true. Instead, it's the goal is to behold, to see Jesus. The environment is inside the church. No, the environment is all of life. 
It's everywhere you go, everywhere you step. The audience is Christians only. Nope, the audience is everyone that God brings into your life that you have influence in. You should be discipling them. People who are far from God, you should be discipling them. Now, don't tell them that. That's weird. Don't say, hey, I'm, I'm discipling you. But, but with, your, with your life and with the sharing of your life, you are discipling them. And then the key to growing is not knowing, but the key to growing is going. Hey, thanks everybody for listening. This has been the Multiply Podcast. We'll see you next time.